Okay, so today we're talking with Steve Goodbread from Vanderbilt University about his 2000 paper titled Significance of Large Sediment Supply, Active Tectonism, Tecton, I don't, you have to correct me there, Steve, and used to see on margin sequence development, late quaternary stratigraphy and evolution of the Ganges Brahmaputra Delta. And I like this paper a lot because when I think about the Bengal Basin, Bangladesh and the area, a lot of times we're thinking about the sedimentary geology. And this paper really, I think, was one of the early ones that I really delved deeply into. And it had a lot of understanding for what's groundwater issues, what are the tectonic issues. And I think a lot of people have built out from this paper. So this is one of the ones I always go back to. I look at the figures, I scratch my head about. And so I thought it'd be really fun just to discuss it with Steve. And I think, so, so that's why I thought we'd start, Steve. So before, I don't know, do you want to introduce yourself and then we can go further? Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah the, this is this is fun to do, Brian. Yeah. Um, takes me back, I guess, uh, I finished my PhD um, in 99, um, but this paper was essentially submitted before I graduated. So um, anyway, it, it was a, an exciting time and uh, it was nice back at, at the time to have a, more time to think and grow <laughs> and read. And so uh, it, it's a time that I actually <laughs> look back to a lot. Um, and so I think some of the things you just mentioned about trying to connect what's in the, the Bengal Basin and the Delta to larger picture things was uh, something I enjoyed doing. Um, yeah. And I think for here, you did it like, this is an, I think of this as like an old school geology paper. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Right. Because um, now when we write papers, they're usually short and focused and you don't always get the background. When I was reading this paper, it brought me back to like my master's and PhD days when you would write longer papers and you'd really delve into the topic. Because even for this one, I, reading your paper, I, I had to remember all my words, look up, you know what I mean? I was really, you really thought deeply about the topic and we don't always do that as much anymore in these it's a lot more short form papers today mm -hmm. no, i think that's right um well i i remember at the time uh that there was uh the morgan and mcintyre paper which was in the late 50s um on the geology of the bengal basin and then there was a Speaking of classic papers, uh, what a seventy-page article in sedimentary geology. <laughs> seventy by page. Jim Coleman, yeah, yeah, on on the sedimentology of the Brahmaputra River. So there's like two papers, one in the fifties, one in the sixties, and then a Japanese scientist uh, Masatomo Mitsu, who I got to spend time with through an NSF summer internship, had published the only sort of modern stratigraphy paper in 93. Um, and so here I was in the late 90s, and there were literally, at least you know, in the, the widespread Western literature, science literature, there were three papers on this system. Um, so it was especially exciting um, because it was such an open open field, and and those three papers are really excellent. I mean, they they gave a lot of ideas. I I don't think one thing we talk about in this paper is the ideas are based on pretty thin 
amount of data, given that this is 100,000 square kilometers. But I, I think those three pa earlier papers um, laid a, a great foundation for it. So um, anyway, I remember priding myself that the top drawer of my uh, file cabinet had every single paper published on, on the region. Like <laughs> none of this was in electronic format. So uh, I still have all these uh, uh, um, photocopied uh, papers from interlibrary loan with my notes <laughs> scribbled on them and colored pencil on the figures. And <laughs> so, uh, yes, old school is a good, good. No, no, it's totally because then if you think about it at the same time, like, no, I, I, I used to do the same thing. And you'd have to have the librarian help you find these papers from like these weird <laughs> right. journals, right? And then the maps, like it was, I, I'm sure you were friends with your librarian because it was hard to get these things. Yeah. And, and, you know, they, they love a good challenge. So yeah. I was definitely close to the librarian and, and, uh, she was, uh, very, very helpful in, in tracking down odd things. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I remember. And then if you think, I, that's amazing. Cause if you think about now, when we think about the Bengal basin and it's importance in the number of people to think about what, not even 20 years ago, there was only three papers on the area. Right. And, and if you think about the context for the arsenic, right, yeah. um, you know, the first paper with the Nixon and, and um, well, that was the first widespread paper, yeah. but what is that, 95 to 99? I mean, uh, essentially that issue was emerging in a bit of a vacuum on knowledge about the yeah. system at all. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't doubt that that contributed to um, sort of the slow start and understanding what this arsenic was all about. No, no, I totally agree. So did you, so, and then, yeah, and I was also gonna say that one of the things we don't talk about is like the cultural importance to like the, like when you're in the region, like how close people are to the rivers. And I like guess it's a different, you know, it's an interesting area because of that with the flooding and the rivers and everything. Like, I feel like people are con more connected, especially out in the rural areas. For sure. Yeah. I, I, well, it's interesting. I think both the, the people are more closely connected to the natural environment. Um, and conversely, the natural environment is so dynamic, it's yeah. more connected to them. I mean, uh, the, the river, as, as we know, doesn't behave well. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's regularly outside of its banks. It, you know, it's regularly migrating hundreds of meters per year and eroding banks and um, avulsing. And so uh, anyway, the, the coupling, I, I don't think I appreciated it as much at the time, but the coupling between the population there and the natural system is is one of the amazing intersections, I think, of earth science and society on the planet. Um, so no, no, I, I totally agree. So then you went, so when, so I'm assuming you went and did field work sometime in the mid nineties there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, growing up and most of my research to that point was, was local, uh, yeah. East coast, uh, coastal marshes and things. And, uh, so the first year of my PhD, uh, my PhD advisor said, well, I, I have this opportunity to look at the Ganges, Brahmaputra Delta in Bangladesh, and I got little stars in my eyes and uh, quickly went out and got my first passport <laughs> and 
you know, four months into my PhD, I made my first major overseas trip to Bangladesh. And uh, I've been there almost every year since. I think it was one or two years I didn't go. Um, so wow. anyway, yeah, uh, that that was an exciting time. Um, oh, and like I said, I guess in, in I should go back and look. I don't know at what point in our papers we started really uh, putting the social and human dimension into the, the context. Uh, the early papers are all geology. And yeah. I think it took a while for me to appreciate um, how significant the interaction was. Um, yeah. yeah, this one's definitely like when I read the intro, it's just pure geology, like cross sections, um, right, facies, facie models, that type of stuff. Yeah. Right before. Because I know, because yeah, because when you build on it, because I know you did the the later nice paper with um looking at the trying to relate the geology and the arsenic, like in a, in the Arihazar area. Yeah, so the travel over there, um, I guess it was. Uh, there's a couple of routes we used to to go to. So to get down to the city of Kulna, um, which today you take one main ferry to get over the Brahmaputra River. And they're currently building the Padma Bridge, right? So yeah. pretty much that'll be all roadway. Yeah. When I did that, it you took seven ferries, <laughs> uh, seven ferry crossings to get there. Oh and uh, they they didn't complete the Jamuna Bridge until yeah. uh, right around the time this paper was born. So I mean, up until that point, the Brahmaputra River bisected the country. There's not a single bridge. Wow. Uh, for roads or trains or walking or anything uh, in this river that divides the country in half. So um, it was it was really pastoral. It really felt like to me going back to the 1800s um, or what I imagined. And yeah. there was there was electricity in the countryside, but it people couldn't afford to buy appliances, anything. So maybe there was a light bulb dangling by a, a single uh, wire strand and Sometimes you'd find a, a single black and white television that literally 150 or 200 people would be gathered around watching in the wow. evening. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it was it was really wonderful. Um, I, I guess to get exposed to community there because in the absence of internet and all these other things, people spent time together and came together in the evenings in the towns and villages. Um, so. Uh, that, that was kind of the backdrop for doing this geology. And they were being farmers and connected to the land. Um, they always had, were very interested in what we were doing and uh, always had important feedback and, and information to give us about frequency of flooding and how much sediment comes and the variability. I mean, it was really better than having an instrument out there. <laughs> you, you could go back and ask questions when the data didn't sound right. <laughs> you know? um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a neat time. That's cool. Okay, now about the paper, there's a couple here, yeah. like when I read your paper, you know, you'll be, I, I usually skip all of, over all your cross sections in the middle. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Like, that's, that's a quality geology move. Right, even though I think there's a couple, right? There's a couple key things you talk about, like these ox. Because I guess I'm coming from the water side, so like my questions are usually, we always ask some basic questions, and I think it drives you and Mike crazy. 
we basically <laughs> say, is it Pleistocene or Holocene? Right. What river was there? Right. Right. And how deep is the Holocene? Yep. Yeah. Right. And I think sometimes then you all get mad at us because like we should think deeper more about the the delta. But it's um but we always treat because I think we're always thinking what's the Holocene aquifer because that's the one most likely to be contaminated. Yeah, for sure. Now I think those I mean those were the fundamental questions we were at. I mean, uh other papers that we put out around this time, the two geology papers, were both uh, on sediment budgets, right? We're really trying to understand how much sediment flux and erosion is coming out of the Himalayas. What does it take in terms of river discharge, excuse me, to build the world's largest river delta? Um, so yeah, this was really reconnaissance scale uh, geology. So I, I think those are all fair questions and the same ones we, we were interested in. Um, and so yeah, the facies is, uh, yeah, it's kind of boring, frankly. It, it's a tool. Um, it's a tool to organize. You know, say you go out and collect, you know, a kilometer worth of of core material at ten sites, hundred meters each, and all you get is sand and mud, right? And so yeah. you can throw your hands up into the air, and go, it's all sand and mud. Yeah. You know, the idea of the facies is to try and um, identify uh, characteristic attributes of those sands and muds that allow you to place them into some sort of category. And the importance of the category is presumably some facies, some sediment characteristics that are definable should correlate to some depositional environment, you know, the main part of the river or some distributary or marshy wetland. And so what we're trying to reconstruct from those facies is really the environments that were there when those sediments were laid down. So you look at the modern system and all the variability um, between the river channels and the tides and the coast and, um, you know, the Pleistocene terraces. And you think about, OK, how do those evolve and change through time? And that's what these facies and the stratigraphy record. So, um, yeah. yeah. It, this that's why this is a longer paper it's putting all of the nuts and bolts out there basically the foundation to come up with the the fun cartoon at the end right yeah no exactly exactly and your cartoons at the end are like they, they right it's they're really interesting to think because you had this right yeah no it's also it's interesting because you end up with this place to scene surface that everything right was built on again yeah Right, and you end up with what you know what we what you show is like this oxidized Pleistocene surface. You sort of see in a lot of places, right? right? The oxidized clays, I mean, and and that's that's just the old delta, right? Yeah. So you hit these oxidized clays, and essentially, if you took today's delta, let's say we were not undergoing human-induced climate change, <laughs> <laughs> entering into uh, another era of um, you know, reduce solar insulation and, and expanding ice sheets and falling sea level, then the rivers start to cut down and the active floodplain where the people live today and farm and gets flooded, well, that no longer gets flooded. It now drains off into the stream, into the rivers. The rivers no longer migrate around because they're incised down in valleys. And so the muds that are there today get weathered and oxidized and you know, 
fast forward 100,000 years to the next sea level rise and um, you come up and flood that old 100,000 year landscape and uh, bury it with fresh new sediments. So, and, that, and that's where we're seeing yeah, that. No, no, that's beautiful. That's sort of where we're, it's sort of like how all that, how that flooding happened is sort of, I think, what helps control like how we think about those shallow sediments today. Right, right. And, you know, the one thing that comes up, I guess, from the, the chemists and hydrologists is, is if you look at the delta, the surface delta, modern delta, there's mud everywhere, right? That's yeah. why there's so much agriculture. You don't grow stuff in sand. <laughs> Yet when you look at the stratigraphy, what's preserved in the geologic record, it's mostly sand. And so uh, and it's, it's a common misperception that the delta is different today than it, it was back then. But really, it, it's preservation, right? Because the rivers migrate so much, they continuously erode that thin soil horizon on top. And so it gets uh, eroded away and not preserved. The, the main thing you preserve are the channels, okay. channel deposits that are sandy. Um, so, so that's what's kind of cool about that Pleistocene surface is it is typically a thin mud cap over sand, which is what you'd get if you could just freeze today's delta in place. Um, but if you don't, the river will probably erode that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because that's, a, I mean, that is, you know, that is exactly what we see today because, you know, every place you go, you always have that first 10, 20 feet of mud or, right? And then below that, you always have your nice sand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and I guess not long after this paper is when I started working with Lex and Mike and um, you guys and Martin Studa, all those on the, on the arsenic. And that's where uh, suddenly the architecture of the Holocene Delta became important. So those facies about mud and sand, you know, those are the ones defining the hydrologic flow paths. Yep. And we all know that it's complex and heterogeneous. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was exciting um, to sort of launch the next phase of really figuring out how it was put together, not m more so than just the the crude what what happened over the last twelve thousand years yeah yeah no no totally totally no yeah t exactly and the one thing that always i guess which i never thought about for the twelve thousand years which i always find now i find fascinating when i think about is how shoreline evolved right mm -hmm. how it sort of filled in the basin right and that the shoreline didn't actually move that much it's so much sediment coming in right right and there's just it was able to just fill up right it kept up with the shoreline it did. And, you know, that that was actually a, a major finding of of this work is it, at this point, um, I mean, it, it remains relatively unique in that you start getting an active delta environment about three thousand three to four thousand years earlier than any other uh, large delta um, because, right, sea level still rising at a centimeter per year. Um, yet the sediment discharge was enough to fill that, that space and sort of maintain the shoreline stability. And, you know, let, let's be fair. When I say shoreline stability, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't, you know, migrating hundreds of kilometers, but, um, it was, it was a dynamic equilibrium, no doubt. I'm sure yeah. there was a lot of change and, and dynamics taking place, but it was overall a, Again, a dynamic equilibrium, dynamic steady state. Um, 
So no, exactly. And then another thing I did, like I was, I was, I mean, I was reading close. I didn't realize that basically Silvette Basin then also got sort of seemed like it filled in on its own, even though it's not quite the right wording. Yeah, you know, Silette's been interesting. We used to think it was a big sediment repository, like this okay. big hole that the river constantly had to fill. And uh, some of our recent work, uh, a student, Ryan Sincavage, who just got a couple of papers coming out uh, last year and this year, um, looked in more detail in that. And um, it, it turns out, even when the big river, the Brahmaputra, was through Silette Basin, it looks like most of the sediment bypasses that. And we're like, why is that? It's this big hole. Well, right, the river's only transporting sediment in the flood season. And if if you look at Silette in in the wet season, it's a lake. That big hole fills up with water. And so when the river floods over its banks, it doesn't flow down into the hole and fill it with sediment because it's already full of water. And so we think that this kind of seasonal climatic control um, is uh, an interesting interaction with the river. So that's why today it, it sort of remains an underfilled basin, even though the big river was there just 200 years ago. Oh, well, that is interesting. I have to read those new papers. Yeah, it's more geology. <laughs> no, I, I, I have a geology background, so I enjoy reading, I, I enjoy reading all these papers. So, but then, because then the other, like, right, then if you move on, the other sort of, the, the um, figure I always also use is how fast that, you're, you have this figure 13, like how fast did the basin sort of fill in? You, you, you sort of plotted all your radiocarbon data right. to try to figure it out. So Yeah, that, one of the things I'm um, pleased about yeah. um, is that I think most of the things in the paper have held up pretty well. Um, that's always and, nice. Like I get, I don't know about you, but I get nervous sometimes. <laughs> yeah, completely. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess that's one of the reasons I appreciated the scope of time as a student to be able to really think through backwards and forwards, forwards and backwards. And I don't feel I have that luxury anymore. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I felt reasonably confident in what we were seeing, but I have to admit there were things we didn't know, you know, yeah. you could see on the map, we only had what, well, ten of our own cores, yeah. and uh, you know, then some odd gray literature yeah. stuff that <laughs> I would, of dubious quality, <laughs> and uh, which is but, amazing compared to how many cores you have now, like how many cores you've collected since then. It's been amazing to watch you go around the country. It's crazy. Yeah, we now have over four hundred. Um, so, but uh, yeah, that figure thirteen with the sea level rise. Yeah. I think that was another that. Is I think what um, emerged from the uh, keeping up with sea level rise, and so currently we're actually, if World Bank and our project team can uh, actually close the contract, <laughs> we're we're supposed to be working with um, government of Bangladesh to do a, a revised sediment budget, which is essentially what we had done with this, you know, ninety nine two thousand work. Um, because it really does determine the fate of, of the system. Um, you know, there's, as we can see in that early Holocene, the system's robust enough potentially to offset rapid rises in sea level, but that's all contingent upon sufficient sediment supply. And secondly, that sediment supply being able to get to 
the landscape. So um, human perturbations such as damming could potentially reduce sediment load. And then uh, flood control works like levees and dikes and things could well uh, inhibit sediment exchange needed to keep the, the landscape uh, above. Yeah. Above and there's a lot of those in the southern parts of the country. They have a lot of the levees and flood control areas and pumping to try to protect yeah. them. Exactly. And that's that's where one of our recent papers in 2015 was it looked at uh, the impacts of that. And there's there's been uh, so I don't know, maybe, you know, the mean sea level rise in the area, relative sea level rise is, you know, three to five millimeters. Nothing too, too crazy. Yeah. Yet the local people would continuously tell us that they were getting more frequent and severe flooding, that water levels were getting higher. Yeah. And uh, it turned out there's a great paper by John Pethick and Julian Orford in 2013 or 14 that discovered that even though mean sea level rise is only going up a few millimeters per year, the embankments we were just talking about and the coastal plain has had the effect of causing the tidal range to amplify by about a meter in the last 30, 40 years. And so what the people were telling us was exactly correct. And it was very humbling as a coastal scientist, you know, in the back of my mind, like, but we don't see it in the data. And it's because we were taking means and averages that took out some of the extremes that that they were experiencing. You know, the people don't care what mean sea level looks like. They care what the the highs, right, that are going to go over the levees. Exactly. And so over this same time period, Brian, uh, the mean high water, the high tide level has been going up between one and 1.7 centimeters per year. Holy crap. Okay. So there's been like a 50 to 75 centimeter increase in high water levels in the last 40 years. Um, and you know, this just doesn't register and it's, it's not global sea level rise or anything like that. It's, you know, it's basically how the tides are now interacting with this embanked landscape and, and the channels there. So, it, um, you know, it was exciting in 2000 as it is today. It's, it's a fascinating system. No, no, I, I told I, I'm, you know, I'm still working away on all of my stuff. So I totally agree. It's uh, there's always new challenges and things to look at. So, but I think, Steve, I think I think that's a good overview. I don't know. Is there anything any big picture stuff we missed? I mean, I know we missed stuff because it's an in-depth paper, but I think we hit a lot of the big ideas. Yeah, I mean, hopefully I had some context. Um, and uh, for sure, I, I, uh, it's exciting actually to hear that it's been a useful, important paper. And um, I can appreciate as a, as a student, that, you know, there are drier sections for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I guess as, as we all come to learn that, Every paper has something important to offer, and um, you know, many times it's it's on the reader to open their minds and and try and engage with the author's enthusiasm and background. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, it's it's fun fun to talk about and think about, um, especially since it's it's still very much live, active research, just as it is for you. Um, Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you very much. We'll end there and uh, look forward to reading your future papers. That sounds great, Brian. Appreciate the time and, and good to chat.